Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. All right, so if you're a guest, uh, we're in Romans chapter 8, and we have been looking at it, and I want to kind of do a quick review to help us kind of get caught up. It's kind of a broad review, really fast. Um, Let's start here. All right. Okay, that is, everybody say it out loud. Justification. All right, so I don't spell the whole words. If you're new, I don't spell the whole word. Sometimes I don't even spell it right. So you got to be listening. Justification, and then what is this one? That's sanctification, all right? And then what is this one? That would be glorification, all right? So these really, these three right here really sum up salvation. I'll spell that whole word. It sums up salvation. In the first part of Romans, uh, justification means to be right with God, all right? And Sanctification then, we've moved into that section in the end of chapter 5 and moving into 6, 7, and 8, where we are now. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. That's all the word means. Sanctification means to be made right, okay, to be, ma- to be right before God. Sanctification is to be set apart for God. It's the same word as holy. We're just saying holy, holy. Sanctification is the word holy. So something that's holy is set apart, all right? It's set apart special. That's what sanctification is. But for us, it's the process of becoming holy. That's transformation, moral transformation. Glorification is that ultimate time at the end, the last day, when we are transformed completely. You ever heard this verse? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be, you know, completely changed. We will be changed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to read that text, it describes it. It's the best explanation of what you're going to look like in the future, is 1 Corinthians 15. Justification is something that happens in a moment. Happens in a moment of time. The moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are viewed as right before God. Everyone wants to know how to be right before God. The moment you put your trust and faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and paying for your sins, you become right with God in a moment in time that stays. Sanctification starts in a moment as part of this process, but it is also a long-term process that leads all the way to the end where in a moment, it happens in one moment, you become glorified, and that is completely redeemed. Physically, in every way. Every molecule, atom, cell in your body is transformed into what you are internally now, what God is uh, creating inside of you now. So this one happens in a moment. This one happens as a process. This is what what Paul's been saying. And glorification happens at the end. What Romans 8 is talking about is how the Spirit applies all of this, how it applies all of this to our heart, how it helps us grow, gets us saved, and brings us to the end in glorification. And the reason the Spirit is critical, we see here, it's a supernatural process. This is something God is doing in us. Now, I want you to understand, this is all salvation. 
Not just this part. We get in the habit of calling this salvation, don't we? Hey, you got saved, and we leave it at that. No, it's a package deal. The whole thing is a package deal. It was always God's intention to take you all the way to the end, to bring you all the way to here. That's his goal. God's goal is to get you all the way to the end. In Philippians 1, 6, what does it say? He, I'm confident of this very thing, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. The day of Christ, folks, is the last day of reality as you know it. That's when he reappears. That's the last day of reality as you presently know it. And on that day, you will be transformed. The universe will be transformed into something phenomenal. Okay? That is the entire package. Okay? God, would any of us in here say, well, God's really good at only doing the first part. We're not really sure about the second part. He can't really change people, and we're not really sure who's going to make it. No. Paul's been saying all along, this is a spirit-led reality. It's a supernatural thing. If God started it, he can finish it. That's the idea. So we exist, Paul says, because the theme is security. As sure as this one is as sure as the end. All right? You, before God, you are in a situation where you're, it's unalterable and unchangeable. If you get to here, you will get to there. If you get to here, you will get to there. That's the idea. But we, Paul has been showing us what it looks like if you're in here. A lot of people think they're in here and they're not. And that's the problem, okay? Once you get to here, this happens to you and then that happens to you. And you can really assess your Christian life by, is that happening to me? Isn't that what we've said all the way through Romans 8? Is that happening to me? If it's happening to me, then that's who you are. If it's not happening to you, guess what? You're out. You're not in there. Okay? Listen. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 5, and I, I just want to read it to you. I just want you to hear it, but if you, 1 uh, Peter, actually chapter 1, listen to what he says. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Where on our little chart would that be? Right there, the beginning. Start over, new life. The whole new birth image is new life. Watch. Born again to a living hope. That's all the way down here. The reason you were born again is to a living hope. All right, that's his goal. To obtain, listen, uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's the reason Paul says you were born again. You are born again for that. Now watch, he's not done. This is amazing. You, for you who, watch this, are protected by the power of God through faith. I love that. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a big part of what God has for you that will be revealed later. 
All of it is there, and that's what the purpose is. Remember, Romans is going to tell us right in the text we're in, you were predestined. You weren't predestined just to be saved. He says you were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the end. That's where the... That's where, that con- that's where that conformity happens is at the end. That's what he predestined you for. He didn't just, pre- let's just get you started and see what happens. No, no, no. The whole thing is a package. And Paul is saying you're secure. He gave his son for the whole thing to happen. He didn't give his son for part of it to happen. All right, does it seem like God to only be able to do one of those and not all of them? That's what security is all about. And so the question then in our text for today, with this wonderful picture of salvation and all that we have in anticipating everything ahead of us, which, if you look at it, creates an intellectual and maybe even emotional kind of warm fuzzy. Like, that's really nice of God. Don't you just think, well, God, you're doing all that for me. Isn't that terrific? Terrific. You get that little, all right. But listen, We still live in a very brutal reality. Life is brutal. And so Paul is recognizing that, and he's asking the question, how does this wonderful truth of salvation go together with the fact that we're still here in this process of becoming holy, and we're not there yet? I mean, this is such a hard process that people get lost here. They don't know what the what's coming. They don't know how to hope for it. They don't know what to do here. And a lot of what happens here negatively affects us future-wise, in our minds, in our hearts. And so Paul is really simply asking the question, how does a secure saint, and he calls us a saint in Romans 8, how does a secure saint suffer? Anyone make sense of that? And how many times does suffering jolt us and make us question everything God's ever thought about doing or intends to do? can do that. So he says, what do you do? How does a secure saint deal with the brutalities of life? How do they maintain hope? Well, we're going to start that subject today, and it really goes all the way to the end, but primarily concerns up to verse 30. And then the book closes with a great hymn. It's just a phenomenal hymn that just says, wow, can you believe what we have? Okay, so really, this is, your, this is the heartbeat, the crescendo, if you will, to verse 30. And then there's just a great hymn of praise that's uh, marvelous. But when you're asking these kind of questions, you're asking the questions that really the big questions of humankind, like, where are we all headed? What, what, what's the meaning of life anyway? I mean, do I have meaning here? See, because we, we, the only way we have meaning in our present day is if there's something future awaiting us, right? If it, has, if it has a future, then the present tense must have meaning. If it doesn't have a future, right, in humandom, I'm coining a word here, all right, in humandom, if it doesn't have a future, what do we say? Well, it's meaningless, right? So if it doesn't have a future, it's meaningless. We look at people's jobs. You got a future in there? Yeah, well, I'd get out of that. We look at relationships and we say, hey, is there a future in that? What do we say? Well, then get out of that, Right? That's what we tell our college kids, teenagers, get out. 
Single adults in a relationship, not future in it, get out. Because there's got to be a future to it to give present meaning to it. We do that with jobs. We do that with everything in life. Sometimes you look at your kids, don't you, and go, yeah, no, no future there whatsoever. <laughs> right? You go to bed that night, you just take a lot of Advil or something, you go to bed. All right, listen. If it has no future, it has no meaning. If it has a future, then that just imports all this meaning to what you and I offer. We get knocked off our feet in the brutal reality of life. And so this is, this is critical stuff. It's like Paul opening up the universe. It's like, listen, this is really what it's like. He's opening up the universe. And says, this is where it looks. This is what it really is all about at the end of the day. And isn't that what we're all searching for to begin with? That's what our text does today. And here's the beautiful thing about what our text does today and what I hope you see in it. It brings meaning to the present by providing a hope for the future, a reality in the future, of something that you are not a spectator in, but you're a participant in. This is a beautiful and profound thought that I've fallen in love with in Romans 8. That I'm not a spectator of heaven. I am a participant in this whole glorification process. Let me just tell you what essentially that means. Um, this is very humbling, by the way, because when you see the word glorified in this text, and you're going to see it, um, well, let's, let's look at Romans 8, 17 here. He, 17 to verse 30 form the unit that we're going to be looking at, okay? 17 ends with the word glorified in it. That's where Paul picks it up. So in our, in our picture, guess where all of the weight is going for Paul? It's going on this end of things now. This end of things. All right? So he starts that. Verse 30, guess what the last word of verse 30 is? Guess you, I bet you can guess. Glorified. That's big inclusio. That's it's a big word. It's an inclusio. That means that's a section, and this is what it's about. It's like a big parenthesis. This. And it's about glorified. And every time it's used, in those two times, in those two times it's used, it's all about us being glorified. There's no glory. It's for us. We are the ones glorified. And then if you look in verse 18 and 21, he uses just the word glory, not glorified, but glory, and each time it applies to the glory we have. So you don't just enter glory. You are you become glorious. Does that make sense? You become glorious. Because I know many of us think about heaven now, and we think, what's going to happen there? How are we going to interact with heaven? We're not sure. Are you allowed to step on gold? I don't know if you can do the street. I don't know if we can walk on. We all think we're going to be really weirded out in heaven. Listen, you're going to be suited for it perfectly. You're not going to feel awkward in heaven. And it certainly is no carnival or museum. You get to walk around and go, wow. You are actually more beautiful than it. It's all about you. What's so humbling in this text is the center stage you take in the end elements of what God is doing in the world and human history. All said right here, with you as the focal point, it's amazing what he's doing in you. This is powerful. So, I just wanted you to see that. That's the theme. 
And it's all, it's all what's going to happen to you. And that's critical to understanding your present meaning. We can't give any present meaning to your life as it, it sits right now where you are, who you're with, where you live, what you're going through. We can't give any meaning to it without understanding that. And that's why it's such a critical text. So we saw last week, remember what we saw? Two weeks ago, Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are children of God because that's where we started. Okay, We are children of God, and if we are a child of God, then we are also heirs. You can't come to faith in Christ and be one in his family and not be an heir. That means get something future. So the fact that I'm related to God means I have a future. That's what the text is saying. In fact, you can't find anywhere else in the New Testament where Paul says something so overwhelming as you are an heir of God. What more could you want? Who would you rather be an heir of? There's no bigger way to say what what is awaiting us than that all who God is and all that he has is yours. And we spent some time on that, so I don't have time to do it now. But notice what he says. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Well, How certain is this promise you're giving me? How certain is my inheritance? Well, if you're fellow connected to Christ, how secure is Christ? If I'm connected to him, guess what? I'm as secure as Jesus Christ is. God could no longer or no more lose his son than lose me. Now, you think about that for just a second. And not only are you as secure as Christ, but you have his status as a son. That means what's his is yours. What he does, you do. It's amazing. All awaiting you, connected to Christ, certain. All by this really important little prepositional link word, this little preposition on the end of the verb, co-heirs. Co-sufferers, co-glorified, fellow heirs with Christ. It's a really important word. This link creates a connection. And I think I mentioned to you last time, it's worth just considering in your mind, can you imagine someone like Christ being willing to share all that he has with the likes of you and me? It's so humbling. I have yet come across something as humbling as this text and the prominent place it puts us in God's plan of redemption. Even creation, the text is going to tell us, groans, not groans waiting for its own transformation, even though that's part of it. It groans watching what God is going to do in us. That's amazing. It's very humbling because we're connected to Christ. That he would share it with us makes me feel so selfish about what I'm willing to share and not share. Well, if I'm a fellow heir, then that means I'm going to suffer with him and I'm going to be glorified with him. I'm as promised to be glorified as Christ is going to be glorified. 
And if I'm going to suffer, and he suffered. Leon Morris, because, you know, you read this and you go, oh, man, it was really good up to that word. Is there any way we can just cover that one? Because I really like the glory word better. Leon Morris writes, this is, this is not some perverse accident. Like, is that really in the text? I'm going to examine the Greek text and see if that's really in there. Yeah, it's there. He says, is that some perverse accident? It's not a perverse accident, he says. It's an integral part of discipleship. That's just part of being in Christ. In fact, I don't feel good about covering that word up anymore, so I'm going to let it bring it back. So, let's look at this very, very important link. Suffering and glory are linked. How we understand this linkage, because we're linked to Christ, and if we're linked to Christ, then we're linked to these two realities, and there's no getting around them. In fact, this becomes an unbreakable law of the kingdom. It's just a law of the kingdom. Look at 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself do what? Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's again the connection between suffering and glory. Very powerful. Let's come back to here and see what's going on. Okay, so we talked about this linkage. All right, let's talk about, first of all, real quickly, what kind of suffering are we talking about? This is a big theological debate. Okay, well, if you go back in your text, you were just told to kill the deeds of the body. Right? Remember that? Kill the deeds of the body. That means kill sin. You're killing off sin in your life. I don't know about you, but when I kill off sin in my life, it really hurts when I don't do something that I really wanted to do. Or I do something I didn't really want to do. It hurts sometimes to do the right thing. So there's just a natural death and a killing and a pain and a suffering that comes from just being associated with Christ. Okay? Some of us have missed out on some things in life. Missed out. I say missed out. We know better. But it feels like it sometimes. We suffer some things. Sometimes it's persecution. Some of us have lost relationships. Some of us have lost families over being in Christ. But none of us have lost persecution. None of us have died. None of us have lost. I mean, there might be one or two. I mean, there might be one or two anomalies in here. But for the most part, you and I sitting in this room, and that's why what's critical and what's really hard with the New Testament, it was really easy to determine who was in and who was out in the New Testament because it was like, well, whoever, whoever's willing to be tied up and burned, we knew they were real. Everybody else is willing to go home. Like if they decided to do that in here, in this room right now, we'd all decide. We wouldn't have to worry anymore. We wouldn't have to have any more arguments about who's really in and who really isn't, right? Because there'd be a few of us in here go, well, I think I'm going home. I think I'm going home. I'm not into rope, all right? It doesn't feel good on my body. And neither does burning. Okay, we go home. So there's persecution. Anything being associated with Christ. But then the text tells us also, and it's going to tell us, we're going to see this next week, 18 to 30 is going to tell us that just life itself, the world itself, is a painful thing to be. And it's not just association with Christ. It's the whole world of pain, just a world of pain that we live in that God is using all of it to accomplish something great. Here's the importance of the link. What God is doing with this part now is very important to this part. They they are linked together 
in a very, very important and special way. And I want to make sure you get it. Um, Think about it this way. You remember when Jesus was approached by the mother of James and John? And she walked up to him and she said, Hey, do you mind if my two sons sit next to you in the kingdom on a throne? Now you think about the audacity. Okay? Well, she didn't even realize what she was asking because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, well, you don't know what you're asking. That's exactly what he said. He said, if they can drink the cup that I'm about to drink, if they can suffer with me, they'll sit with me. You've got to suffer with me to sit with me. It's not just sequential. Hey, suffering comes first, then there's this great glory, as if glory was a consolation prize. Glory is not a consolation prize. Listen, it's a culmination of everything God's been doing in you. This is part of what he's doing in you to conform you. You know what glory is at the end of the day? It's transformation. He turns you into something else that he's already been turning you into all along. So you can't have a transformed seat in heaven if you haven't been transforming all along. Do you see? God, you want to sit next to me? Then you got to do what everybody else got to do. Become. And you start becoming now. And even though it hasn't happened fully yet, the Spirit of God is in us, producing in us this changed character. Look. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. That's the kind of person that functions well in heaven. Not someone who gets there and goes, transformation? What's all this about? (laughs) I've never changed anything in my whole life. This is great. No, 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 that's not how it's going to be. It's not a consolation prize. It's a transformation that's already happening to you now. So the suffering becomes critical to glorying and what glory is. So let me talk to you real quickly about glory. Because if we can understand glory a little bit, we'll we'll, we'll get this picture. So glory is this, okay, we get this new existence in heaven. And it's something that you are transformed into, something that you become. You become radiant, perfect, pure, and powerful. And I mean powerful. You will have abilities there that you've never had before. Things you wish you could do today, you will do them in heaven. Because you're going to be part of a great eternal adventure. And you will shine like the sun, Matthew 13, 43 says. Listen to what it says. It says, the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Listen, heaven isn't going to overwhelm you. You are going to overwhelm it. You're not a spectator. And it's not a museum for you to gawk at. You will have become something ready and suitable for in a reality where you're at God's disposal perfectly in a way you long for now, you will be there. And you'll be able to, to do everything he always intended for you to be. Ever, ever grown because you can't be all that he wants you to be sometimes? Or that life can't be as he intended it to be in your heart? You, you sense sometimes... In heaven, you'll never, ever have that feeling. You'll get a thought that ought, something ought to be, and it will be. That you want to do something, and you will. That's heaven. You will have become something suited for the reality. Creation becomes something phenomenal for you. Not you to stand around and go, look how pretty this is. 
It's going to be gawking at you, Paul says. Can you imagine living without one of your senses right now? You ever have somebody say, hey, would you rather be blind or deaf? Maybe they'll say that to you. You get that stupid conversation all the time. You're like, wow, really? I don't know. And the more you think about it, you really don't. I, you know, I just prefer not to have this conversation. Right? I don't want to be asked that question because I'm not giving anything up. Because, you know, if you have one sense, well, how many of you know somebody who, who can't taste? Like, I know a person who can't taste. There's no sense of smell in here. It affects taste, can't taste. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Well, you, maybe you should die right now if you can't taste. You all right? That's how we would feel. One sense gone of your five. Just one of them gone. And it's a monumental effect on your life, isn't it? Imagine in heaven when you have a thousand senses. And you're able to take in everything that God is doing and intended for all reality. And you will operate in it perfectly because he will make you suited perfectly for that reality. That's why you won't feel awkward in heaven. You were made for it. You know what you are in comparison? You're a tomato. Right now you're just a tomato. In comparison to what you're going to be, you're a zucchini. Pick a fruit. Pick a vegetable. In comparison to what we're going to be, that's what we are. You get this capacity to enjoy all that God created, and you get the capability to function and be active and creative. You know there are billions of galaxies. Who do you think is going to manage the universe when God recreates it, and it's bigger and better than it is now? Who's going to manage it? We're called to manage it. We will be active. Imagine having more energy than you can imagine and never being tired and feeling rested at the same time. Feeling rested and having all the energy in the world. Who's ever felt that? All at the same time. That's why C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, you ought to read The Weight of Glory again. Because he talks about this imagery. He talks about us being at present, we are on the outside of the world. He says, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. That's right. Someday, he says, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience. Then they will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is now only the first sketch. You've seen some beautiful nature here, haven't you? It's just the first sketch. And one of these days, you will take on that splendor. You won't be a spectator of the splendor. You will be splendid. That's what he's saying. That's what the hope is for you. That's what God intended all along. That's what he's been wanting for you. And he's already doing it in you. That's what the sanctification process was. That's what this process is. Listen, listen. He's already doing it in you now. Now, this is going to transform the way you look at the hardships of your life. He's already doing it in you now, transforming you into this. So these two go together in such a unique, wonderful way that you can't separate them. You can't say, I don't want to hurt. You can't say, I don't want to suffer. 
You can't say, I want this life to be painless. Because God is so concerned about what's happening inside of you so that one day you become all. But that process begins now inside of you so that there's an inner character, all right, that has to develop before I'm ready for that, that ultimate transformation. So I'm being transformed. What I'm becoming, I will, I will ultimately become it in eternity. This is just so amazing. And God has invested everything in this deal. And he gave his own son for this deal. Paul will tell us later in Romans 8. I've invested my best for this to happen in you. You better believe it's going to happen. And so what glory does then, or what suffering does, is prepares us for glory. That's the first thing it does. It prepares us for glowing. Growing. So Christ followers, where you are now, here's how you get present meaning to your life. You as, as a Christ follower, what's Paul saying to the suffering saint? How is that guy thinking about life and reality? Listen, Paul says, we're already growing in readiness for a life in eternity. Every day you live, every struggle you endure, every difficulty you have to deal with, every act of obedience that costs you something here are all preparing you for that reality and ultimate transformation there. That's what's happening. So when we look at suffering, we see ourselves getting ready. We're just more ready. That, that's how we see it. So imagine, you're going to live forever, and you think about this. Okay, you're not just waiting to get something. A lot of people bail out here. They want Christ here, but they bail out in the middle part because it's hard, and then they don't get this, but they want this. Oh, they'd love to have this part. God's not giving you heaven as a gift, as some sort of consolation prize. It's a part and parcel of the transformation he's already started in you. And that's what that connection has just been so radical for me. Remember Mickey Mantle, 63 years old, he died. He died of this, you know, liver complications, obviously, and diseases all brought on by heavy drinking and really hard living, remember? Remember what he said? I mean, his famous quote is, uh, he would have taken better care of himself had he only known how long he was going to live. Isn't that a great quote? And that's essentially what's happening here. See, you're going to live forever in a transformed state. So you already start taking care of yourself now in terms and in light of that. You start making decisions now in light of that. You start living now in light of that. That's the connection. And sometimes it really hurts. But the hurts is part of the inner transformation that gets us ready for that ultimate glorification. That's what he's saying. It really, I have this young boy. I got this email last Two weeks ago after the service, after we did Romans 8, and about the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you and becoming one of his children, a, a young boy gave his life to Christ that night, that Sunday night. He announced in the car on the way home from dinner, or yeah, from, that he wanted the Holy Spirit to live in him. He wanted, he was in the service, he was only seven. After they got home, went, had a great conversation. He understood a little bit more about it. He gave his life to Christ. He was all smiles. He said, now I'm on Jesus' side, and I have a Christian birthday. That's what he said. And everybody was excited in the family. They celebrated a little bit. A little later, he comes downstairs with two bags of candy and snacks that he had stashed in his closet. This is a seven-year-old. 
Is this greatness or what? He felt he could no longer hide these from us since he was on Jesus' side now. And I just thought, oh, that's it. Let me tell you, you know how bad it hurts for a kid to give up candy? (laughs) Do you know how bad that hurts? That hurts every bit as bad as anything you've ever given up in your whole stinking life. Well, listen, that's what's happening. He's already transforming us now. So here's the big question. What do you mean growing in readiness for heaven? How many of you are, here's a great question. Mickey Mantle asked it. If I'd have known I was going to live this long, I'd have already started doing something about it here. So let me ask you a question. Are you ready for eternity? If God called you home to eternity right now, would you be prepared to run a city in heaven? Could God entrust a part of eternity to you to run it? Because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We are going to be celestial bureaucrats. Luke 19 tells us that if you're, if you're faithful in a few things, he's going to make you a ruler over many cities. Some of us will be operating many cities. Imagine somebody said to you, hey, we'd like you to run London today. You're in charge of London. You're in charge of Miami. God help you. All right? You're in charge of Miami. All right? It's yours. An eternal city is yours to run. Imagine. Are you ready? Because that's what you're going to do. That's what you're being ready for. That's what you're being transformed. Or how about this, as this little boy did, are you ready for everything you've ever done, everything you've ever been or said, Luke 12? What's said in the dark shadows will be shouted from the mountaintops. Are you ready for your whole life to be exposed? David Bream! Everything about David That's going to be a sad, sad day right there. <laughs> All right, listen. You ready for that? Are you ready like this little boy to go ahead and bring it all out now so that when you get to heaven? That's, that's how I took that. How much am I hiding in my life? Keeping, hiding, when in heaven it's all going to be exposed. How do I get ready now for that life? That's, that's what the Christian life is about. Being ready. So many people in the middle here are total slackers waiting for heaven to fix everything and end it all. And heaven just becomes a place where you give up. That's not how it is. Heaven is not a place you give up. Heaven is not a place you sit around. It's not that way. And I think it messes with a lot of our minds and heads about what life is about and what we're doing. It's as if it's a, you know what it is? Life here is just a big internship. You know why kids get interns? You know why you do an intern? So that you'd be re- more ready when you finally get the real thing. Isn't that why we do interns? You know, my son is kind of investigating the possibility of going to medical school, and they tell you, hey, look, the more experience you have, get with somebody. Become an apprentice to someone. Get some experience so that when you, when you get into law, when you, when you register, when you apply, we'll, we'll see you've got some experience because there's something, listen, isn't there something about some experience that makes the actual doing of it in reality better? Everyone knows that. Even school is better. I know kids who couldn't get into Dallas Theological Seminary until they got more ministry work under their belt because that would make it more better. And then they, they went and did a year, a couple years of ministry, and then Dallas Seminary accepted them because there's something about the experience that helps with the ultimate goal of what you're trying to accomplish. That's how heaven is. God is saying, look, I'm all, I'm, you're just interning for what's going to happen there. I don't want you to get to heaven and feel completely out of place. You want to get to heaven and 
and feel like that's what I was supposed to be doing all along. And I've been doing it. So that heaven feels like, yeah, I've been doing that. Yeah, I've done that before. I've been in that emergency room. I've, I've been in that class. I did that ministry. That's what, you're, that's what you're wanting. And you see your life, and your life will feel this way. You'll feel like everything you've been through has led up to this, and it'll feel that much better. So I can't even get to the second point I'm going to get to that, that, that glory does, or that suffering does for glory. The first one is just prepares you for glory. We'll look at the next one next week. Makes it sweeter. We'll have to talk about that later. Listen, don't you think, okay, just got a few more rants here, and then we're done because we have to save everything else for next week. But listen to this. Tell me how cool this thought is. Don't you think heaven was different for Jesus after he went back? I probably hadn't thought about that in a while. After the ascension, after suffering, the Bible alludes to the fact that his obedience, remember Hebrews 12 even, Hebrews is a really important book for this because it talks about Jesus' obedience when he determined to do what God asked him to do. But who endured the cross, then sat down at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? He endured first and then sat down. There was something that made sitting down that much better and more real because he had suffered and obeyed in a way that had not happened. Hey, don't you think worship is different in heaven after what Jesus already did? Doesn't Revelation 5 tell us that we don't just see him as the lion anymore? The angels are now looking at the what? The lamb. He's a lamb. He's an obedient king. Wow. That made eternity that much different for him. And that's, that's exactly what's going to happen for us. You don't want to get to heaven and not experience that. That's what Paul is saying that's true of the believer. The believer knows that he can exult in difficult times. Watch this. What did he say in Romans 5? Is this it? No, I got it right here. Romans 5, he's already said this. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, that's salvation, into this grace where we stand, okay? And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. That's what we're talking about that hope of glory, right? And not only this, but we also exalt. What else could we exalt in? That seems like everything. In the tribulations that we are experiencing now, why in the world would we exalt in tribulation now? Suffering, pain, difficulty now. Why? Because knowing that tribulation brings about this word right here, and it's a critical word. James 1 uses it, and Romans 8, 25 uses it. When we finally get there, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. It results in the thing we've been doing. Wait a minute. I'm already hoping. Yeah, but now I can really experience the hope because I have gone through what I needed to go through in the process of becoming. That's what it is. And so it's connected together. Paul's already say it. He's just re-saying it. So what happens when you get to heaven? And you walk in the door or something like that, and God says, hey, come sit up here with me. Oh, James and John, James and John are going to come to your head, and his mother is going to come to your mind. You know immediately when you're asked to come sit on one of the thrones next to him, because you will rule in heaven. If he rules, you rule. Imagine when you're asked to come sit down next to him. And you take your seat on that throne and he has something now he didn't have the first time he was in heaven. Scars. 
pulls up his, he shows you this war stuff. You know what heaven is? Heaven is like, it's like a club for sufferers who celebrate what God has done in them. And Christ led the way. Consider him who endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of God. That's the exhortation for us to do the same. And he says, what happens when you get there? And, and you've suffered. Take your seat next to him. And you've made some sacrifices. And you have some scars to show. Brennan Manning said, on the last day, Jesus will look us over, not for medals, diplomas, or honors, but for scars. I'll just finish with this verse. It, over, it just overwhelmed me. Still has. Can't, I can't, almost can't handle it. Revelation 3, 21, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And overcomes is a big word if you read what's going on in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. I will grant him to sit down, here's this great word, with me. With me. There's that link again. On my throne. As, here it is, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There's no throne in heaven that does not have someone with scars sitting on it. What if we could look at our pain, and here's the wonder we have, because we know Christ, that not one hardship, not one hardship, because God never, ever wastes pain in the life of a believer. He never does. And this is really hard for me. This is the hardest truth in Scripture for me. I have two hard things in the Christian life that are really hard for me, and this is one. I, I'm a melancholy. I get mad at God. I just don't think he's running the world right. Anybody do that? Let me see your hand. You ever get mad at God and you go, I think this guy needs to be replaced. <laughs> yeah, I do it all the time. All of a sudden, this is weighing down on me and kind of settling me a little bit and saying, you know what, there's a place. I don't want to sit on a throne if God hasn't been transforming me. In the Old Testament, when you, when you did right, you got blessed. That's why most of, most of the followers of God, most of them in the Old Testament, were wealthy. Job was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Joseph was the top ruler guy, the wealthy. He went through heck to get there, but yeah, he, was, he, had, he had a lot of stuff. Because if you, if, and all of Egypt was blessed because Joseph was there, somebody who was obedient. If you were obedient in that theocratic society, in that theocracy where God ruled the nation, you were blessed. Read the end of Deuteronomy. You're blessed or you're cursed. You obey me, you get blessed. You disobey me, you get cursed. And that's the way we like to operate. And we think to God, hey, God, you know, I did some good things today. I'm looking for my blessing. How many of you think that way? That's not how it is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, if you're an heir with Christ, what are you? 
That's what you can expect. Well, suffering here for us is an anomaly. We, we, we try to be savvy enough to avoid it. We most, mostly have a feeling inside of our hearts with most people when they're suffering, like, ah, oh, sorry, you weren't good enough to get past that. <laughs> yeah, I avoided that one. Okay, who else are we talking to? And that's how we vote. If we're smart enough, good enough, and, and good, and, and do things right, we'll avoid suffering. That's not how it is at all. Hardship is preparing you for what God ultimately has in mind. If your faith stays strong in Him and your character changes through it. That's a hard pill to swallow. You can't swallow it all. You can't even begin to swallow if you don't have a really good grasp on what's waiting for you. And what's waiting for you is not a museum for you to gawk at. It's a place where you will be so utterly transformed that the place is more impressed with you than you are with it. And so the transformation must start now. I wish that I could give the next part of this talk now. Just live with that for this week, and we'll see each other next week. All right? Father, thank you for our time. I pray you'll instill this on our hearts in all the difficult circumstances we're in now. We look forward to what else you have to say to us that can encourage us in our difficult, difficult circumstances as we await the eternity that you've described. In Jesus' name, amen.